Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. Historians debate when globalization began. Some people say 1492. Uh, Some people go to the 1970s or the 1980s. I'm hoping people will think about the year 1000. In this episode, I speak with historian Valerie Hansen and Getty Research Institute director Mary Miller about Valerie's new book, The Year 1000. Halfway between Shanghai and Hong Kong on the China coast, the smell of foreign incense filled the air. The street was packed with customers buying pearl necklaces from Sri Lanka, ornaments carved with African ivory, and perfumes preserved with stabilizers from Tibet and Somalia. Depending on the holiday, Hindu, Muslim, or Buddhist worshippers joined the throngs of people. This is what the city of Guangzhou was like in the year 1000, and it's how Valerie Hansen opens her new book, The Year 1000, when explorers connected the world and globalization began. Listeners to this podcast may have heard my conversation with Valerie four years ago on the occasion of the publication of her then-new book, The Silk Road, A New History. Valerie is the Stanley Woodward Professor of History at Yale, where she teaches Chinese and world history. Joining Valerie and me on this episode of the podcast is Mary Miller, director of the Getty Research Institute. Mary is a former professor and colleague of Valerie's at Yale, and a specialist in the history of the Maya. So welcome, Valerie and Mary. It's great to have you both on this podcast. Now, Valerie, your new book comes in the middle of a global pandemic, fueled and facilitated by the instruments of globalization. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about that coincidence, and if it's made you rethink your book in any way. Yes, it definitely has. When I was writing the book, I tended to think that what was happening in the year 1000 was just a difference in degree than what is happening today. But the events of the past few months have made me rethink my position. Historians debate when globalization began. Some people say 1492. Uh, Some people go to the 1970s or the 1980s. I'm hoping people will think about the year 1000. But there were some checks on the effects of globalization for the first 900 years of globalization, I think we could say, that no country was ever able to export enough goods to supply an entire market abroad. And something else I've been thinking a lot about is that in my book, I looked very hard for evidence of epidemics or movement of disease when people came into contact with each other for the first time, because it's well known to historians that Uh, when the Spanish first arrived in the Americas, that they brought, we used to say smallpox, but now people think it might just have been the flu or the common cold with them, and that there were mass deaths among the Amerindians at the time. And in the year 1000, where of course the historic record is not complete, I didn't find any examples of that kind of transmission of disease, which puzzles me. It still puzzles me. And the only explanation I have is that in the very beginning, maybe people just weren't in contact with each other for sustained periods of time. That's one explanation. Another explanation may be that our sources just don't tell us about it. Well, tell us how you came to choose the date 1000 as the marker for the beginnings of globalization. When I was finishing the Silk Road book, 
I noticed that there were two dates right around the year 1000 that marked really the beginning of a new era. One of them is when the there's an oasis city in West China uh, named Khotan, and it falls to the Karakhanids, uh, one of the Islamic dynasties that gets going around the year 1000 in Central Asia. And there's also a famous treaty between the Song dynasty and the dynasty to the north, the Liao dynasty. And so those two dates were in my mind. And then I knew about the year 1000 as the moment when the Vikings landed in Canada, in today's northeastern Canada. Once I noticed that these three dates were so close, I began to think about all the connections that might have existed in the world at that time. And now I think that they are related because we have a pattern of regions expanding all over the world. And those three incidents I just mentioned are examples of when people living in one place expanded and encountered people living in another place. And I was very lucky to have the chance to teach a seminar with Mary Miller, who's here today, and with Anders Winroth, my former colleague at Yale, who's now gone to the University of Oslo, entitled Circa 1000. And I was able to learn so much from them about Mary's expertise in the Americas and Anders's expertise about the Vikings. I think it would come as a surprise to most people that you begin the book with the Vikings. Tell us more about that. The book, when I was writing the book, the order of the chapters kept changing. But the Vikings are, I think, a good place to start because they're familiar to people. We all know who the Vikings are. That is not true of many of the other people I write about. And there's very strong archaeological evidence at the archaeological site of Lansaw Meadows of their presence from about the year 1000 to about 10 years later. And then the Vikings have another advantage, which is that the Icelandic sagas give us a source where they talk about these explorations. A lot of the peoples coming into contact with each other around the year 1000 haven't left us any documentary record or have left us only an indirect documentary record. So we don't really know what their impressions of each other were, where with the Vikings, we know at least how their descendants said what the um, Native Americans looked like or the Native Canadians looked like when they encountered them um, in the year 1000. And, And that really isn't true of any of the other places that I write about. I want to hear more about the sagas, but first I want to ask you about the uh, peoples that resided in the northeastern coast of North America in the year 1000, about the time of the Norse voyagers. These are people by names I hadn't heard of before, the Dorset, the Thule, and the ancestral Innu. Tell us about them. There's always the problem with names of peoples and linking them to archaeological evidence. The Innu are the people who are living in the area of Lansaw Meadows in the 19th and 20th centuries. That's when those names are first written down. And they're a local people, The Dorset are far to the north in the Canadian Arctic, and they have a distinctive trade good, which is translucent chert. We know a lot about the Dorset from multiple archaeological sites. Um, The Thule, I think, they're very interesting because they start in Alaska, and around 1000, they migrate across northern Canada and end up uh, getting all the way to Greenland. And they have a very special skill set that they know how to hunt baby seals um, year round because they dig holes in the ice and hold a feather above the hole in the ice and wait to see the feather move. And then they know there's a seal underneath it. And they harpoon the seal with a toggle harpoon. So the tip comes off, the seal can uh, swim away, but when it dies, they can pull in the rope and have the seal. And that allowed them to hunt year round. And that technology allowed them to 
launch this huge migration and ultimately to displace the Vikings from Greenland. You tell us about three different uh, possible uh, locations of Vinland, the island, great island of Vinland. And why is it identifying that location? Why is that important? Why does it matter in the history of globalization? I don't think there's any real significance because the three locations are all close to each other. One is in the Canadian island of Newfoundland. One is on Nova Scotia near Chaleur Bay. And one is on the main Canada border. They're all close to each other. I think this is just something about wanting the satisfaction of knowing where they landed. But the key thing is they landed. The, the, the Vikings incontrovertibly arrived in North America around 1000. And what uh, do the sagas tell us about that or about the presence of the, of the peoples in, in the northeastern part of the country? These are legends that were recounted by families about the uh, noble deeds of their ancestors. Many very serious historians of Iceland don't believe very much that's in the sagas. They think that they're written down two or 300 years after the year 1000 and they're not reliable. But the archaeologists who found Lanshaw Meadows found it using the descriptions in the sagas. So that's one measure of their reliability. Uh, and Jacques Cartier gets to this part of Canada in 1534, and he encounters people who sound a lot like the people who are described in the sagas. And the sagas call the people living in Canada the scralings, and it's a word meaning the wretched ones. And they describe them as a people who have skin canoes as opposed to a birch bark canoe. And when the Vikings first encounter them, they're very eager to trade. And the sagas have parallel accounts of the same episodes in different orders. And the trading episodes in one of the sagas, they trade red cloth that the Amerindians are very excited to be able to trade for and trade so long that the Vikings run out of their supply of red cloth and they start trading smaller and smaller pieces. But still, the Skraelings are trading them the same amount of fur to get these scraps of red cloth. In the other account, uh, the Vikings are trading milk goods, uh, which is interesting. So the encounter in the sagas, it starts off in a friendly way. There's trade, uh, but then there's an attack and the Skraelings come and they uh, throw a giant rock like a ballista, a bag full of rocks on the village where the Vikings are living. And that's one of the incidents that prompts the Vikings to leave. And the Vikings, we know where they've settled because they leave Denmark and they go to Iceland and they go to Greenland. Both Iceland and Greenland are uh, unoccupied when they go there. And I think that's probably why they leave uh, what's now Canada. So since this is a book about globalization, which is about people in contact with each other and the consequence of that contact, what is the consequence of the contact between the Vikings and the Amerindian natives of North America? The long-term consequence is that uh, the Vikings leave, but trade continues. There's still trade across the North Atlantic. And we know this from some very interesting archaeological evidence. There's some furs that were found in Greenland, and they're from bison. So their furs have to be from North America. They can't be from Greenland. And so the main significance is that when people had these first encounters in the year 1000, one option was that they would continue and develop a more robust relationship and trade would take off. But another option was that both parties or one party would decide it wasn't worth it and they would stop trading. Now let's bring uh, Mary Miller into the conversation. Mary, Valerie writes that of all the agrarian empires in the world in the year 1000, scholars know the least about the Maya in Mesoamerica. Why is that? 
Well, it's a complicated time for the Maya. If you were to ask about, say, the 8th century, we would have day-by-day fine-grained accounts that would be through the historical inscriptions. But when we hit the period after the collapse of the great Maya tropical rainforest uh, cities in the southern part of Yucatan and all across Guatemala, after that, our inscriptions are really quite hit and miss, even though the Maya continue to make them, but they do not have the same attention to time. And the excavations of the great Maya city of Chichen Itza, really the most important city of the new world of the year 1000, uh, the archaeology took place at Chichen Itza before the Second World War in an era before radiocarbon dating. And there were a number of pieces of very bad luck, um, hurricane striking, all the excavated materials being destroyed in certain kinds of natural disasters. So there are so many reasons why our information about Chichen Itza is quite flawed. Mary, Valerie started her book with the Vikings and then followed the Vikings with the Maya. What's the connection between the Vikings and the Maya? Well, it's a great question, Jim, because in fact, there are these vexing and extremely interesting paintings that were made at Chichen Itza that show blonde individuals with strangely rendered ears in highly naturalistic paintings, and they sure don't look Maya. When they were found in the 1930s, no one even raised the possibility that they were Vikings. But of course, we didn't know about L'Anson Meadows. And if you think about it rationally, if you, the Vikings, were following foodstuffs south, you would have landed in every possible place where modern development would leave no trace of a possible Viking touchdown on land, making landfall somewhere between Yucatan and Lonsol Meadows. Every bit of it would have major development since that time. So I think no one really wanted to think about the Vikings in Yucatan. But it was long a great interest of one of my mentors, Michael Coe. And he and I often talked about whether the Vikings reached Yucatan. So Valerie, you raised the, the matter of uh, environmental issues that may have attracted the Vikings south toward Yucatan. Why did they come all the way to Yucatan? It's funny. My answer is not that they were deliberately exploring, but that they could have been blown off course. And we have the great example, 19th century example, of a fishing boat in Japan that is just going from Tokyo to a nearby port. And it's Uh, gets caught in a storm. And uh, 16 months later, it ends up in Washington state. It's been blown across the entire Pacific. And I think when we think about crossing the oceans, I mean, we live in the modern world. So few of us have any kind of experience like this. Mike Coe, who um, very sadly died between the time the book was done and uh, it came out. And uh, he was very interested and told me about this example of also on the Yucatan Peninsula of a town where uh, people reported that it had been founded by people who may have come from Africa. So maybe they were blown off course, 
But I don't think we have to envision the Vikings systematically going down the east coast of the U.S. and going from Florida to the Yucatan. I think we could also imagine them sailing to somewhere in the Atlantic and just being blown off course and ending up adrift on the Yucatan Peninsula, on the coast. And what they would have discovered in any ability that they gained to communicate with indigenous peoples was that Chichen Itza was the place. It was the place that was a beacon for peoples from all the way, from Northern South America, from Colombia, from Southern Central America, from Panama, from Costa Rica, from the Pacific coast of Mexico, and that there are materials at Chichen Itza that come all the way from what is modern day New Mexico. So that there was long distance trade, traffic, and pilgrimage. And to a certain degree, the Vikings might have also gotten caught up in that. Yeah, I may be wrong about this, but I think I remember that Valerie describes the consequences of a prolonged drought in Central America between the year 1000 and 1100, and that causing a sharp decline in the population, as well as the mass migration now to the northern Yucatan and the rise of the city of Chichen Itza, which is probably, it said, the largest city in the Americas in the year 1000. So this consequence of environmental change is an important part of your book, Valerie, that you come back to from time to time that provokes migration of peoples. All of the climate information, I think, is tentative. And it's one of the uh, reasons in the book that whenever you know I encountered climatic explanations, I always put them in. But our understanding of the world's climate in the year 1000, I think, is still in its preliminary stages. So um, we know that the Maya heartland is in the tropical forests of Mesoamerica. And the largest Maya cities are um, flourishing in around 700 and 800. Something happens. Maybe it's climate change. They were planting maize, planting corn, and they may have depleted all the nutrients in the soil. We're not really sure what causes the collapse of these big uh, Maya cities. We just know that people move west to Chichen Itza and the peak period of the city is maybe between like starting 950, 1000, going up to 1100. How do we know what happens after the year 1000 with regard to the Maya? Because I think I read in your book that uh, the written record of the Maya stops before the year 1000. Right. The main reason we know is that we just see the Maya moving and we see other cities growing. And I think that's one of the challenges for archaeologists, not just of the Maya, but of any society that a site is suddenly empty and you don't know why people leave. Chichen Itza, we think the population was around 40,000 people at its peak. And then later on, there's just many fewer people there. Mary, describe Chichen Itza for us. Sure. So Chichen Itza is really a great thriving enterprise by the year 900. The great Maya cities in southern Mesoamerica of the deep tropical rainforest, and there were dozens of them, are all abandoned shortly after the year 800 in all likelihood. And so the population is much, much smaller by the year 900. And that population is centered at Chichen Itza. And they bring many of the characteristics, particularly in the beginning, of the great Maya cities to the south. 
But after the year 900, or perhaps right around it, they're also bringing all of the characteristics of the cities to the north around Mexico City. And it's clear that this is the largest place in that world, in the Mesoamerican world. And it's also a place that is heterogeneous in that there are peoples from all over those worlds. And they bring their their treasures, their valuables, whether it's gold or turquoise. Chichen Itza will build what is the single largest plaza in all of the Maya world, in which there's so much space for people to be present and to gather, suggesting huge temporary populations that come both to its remarkable place of offering. It has this incredibly cool, nearly round, large sinkhole where offerings were thrown, were tossed, were um, made, most of them burned into this deep sinkhole full of water, ice cold, coming out of underground rivers. And the presence of this sinkhole um, and, and its miraculous properties was what was drawing people from around the world. And it's also why we have any knowledge of Chichen Itza and the offerings from these far distant places. Otherwise, we simply wouldn't know. Well, tell us about the importance of Cahokia, which we know as a settlement east of St. Louis in North America. And I understand from reading the book that it was the largest urban complex in the continental U.S. before 1492. Tell us about its connection with the Maya. The, the whole section of the book about the Americas is looking at the archaeological evidence of connections between two different places and deciding whether or not there's sufficient evidence to assert that trade existed. Some of those connections are much easier to demonstrate. So the connection between Chichen Itza and Chaco Canyon. And in Chaco Canyon, uh, there are vessels that were made there that have traces of theobromine, and that's the uh, sign, the chemical signature of chocolate. There are also brightly colored feathers from macaw birds. There are also macaw skeletons. And then we have on the Chichen Itza side of the trade, we have the turquoise coming from Chaco Canyon. Everyone accepts that there is trade. And that trade is interesting because it also peaks around the year 1000. The question of ties between Cahokia, which is, as you say, the largest settlement in the U.S., in the modern day U.S., before 1492, with maybe 20,000 people. Um, there's no direct evidence of the Maya, but there's some interesting teeth evidence, uh, skeletons found with notched teeth, and the notching on the teeth is characteristic of Chichen Itza. We have tantalizing other bits of evidence as well. Valerie, you point to the notched teeth. And the teeth that we have that are notched by and large come from earlier periods of the great Maya cities. And when you have notched teeth, it means that you make lordly speech. It's a critical part of a kind of young male adulthood ceremony. So it also speaks not just to a physical outcome, but some kind of ritual practice that might be at play. For me, one of the most exciting pieces of the connection between Chaco Canyon and the Maya region is not just the signature residue of chocolate, but it is that 
the very pots that they make in Chaco Canyon have so much to do with the aesthetic preferences of Maya vases. So Valerie, we in the story that you've been telling us, we've got now the suggestion of massive uh, migration from the western part of the northwest territories of the western hemisphere across to the northeast territories with the arrival of the Vikings. And then we got the suggestion that the Vikings may have come south all the way down to Central America and into contact with the Maya. So we got this great movement of peoples. All of a sudden now you introduce us to the Rus people through the Russian primary chronicle and the ruler Prince Vladimir. Tell us about that and if there's any connection between the peoples in the Western Hemisphere and the peoples in the Eastern Hemisphere? There is a connection because the Rus are, uh, they're also a Viking group. The word Rus, of course, is the root of the modern name Russia. And the sources we have describe people coming from the uh, region of modern Scandinavia into Eastern Europe. And so at the same time that the Vikings are traveling west to the Americas, they're also traveling east into Eastern Europe. And they have a much greater impact. They stay in Eastern Europe. They marry women who are, marry is maybe a romanticization. Uh, They mate with the local women and uh, they have a profound impact on Eastern Europe. And the first polities, the first small governments that take shape in the region are uh, organized by the Rus, by different Rus leaders. And Vladimir is the most famous because he succeeds in unifying uh, the region of what's the modern Ukraine and some of uh, modern Russia around, well, in 985 is when he comes to power. But what about the Russian primary chronicle? What was that? The Russian primary chronicle is a source that is in its way as problematic as the Icelandic sagas. Um, It's written down a little bit earlier. It's about 1100. And uh, it's written from a very strong Christian point of view. So it describes things that happened in the region of Eastern Europe. And it describes the conversion of uh, Prince Vladimir to Christianity. But there's often an attempt to first understand what the Chronicle says, and then to explain what might actually have happened. You raised the question about the conversions, and there were so many different conversions around the year 1000, and particularly in this part of the globe, but it was all the way from the Khazars to the Ghanaians. So tell us about that phenomenon of of conversion. Why did it occur at that time? It, It happens then because a lot of rulers, I mean, Vladimir has maybe the largest territory that he's in this category, that Uh, rulers succeed in conquering, taking control, I would say by the classic techniques of uh, fighting and organizing strong war bands. They take control of a given region. And then once they've unified a place, then many of these peoples were worshiping local deities. A Christian might call them pagans. And the rulers are often, like Vladimir, we know when he comes to power that he's worshiping some local deities and he puts up statues to them in Kiev, that's his capital. And then the rulers look around and they seem to think, you know, this, I will have better luck keeping my kingdom unified if I don't use one local deity because a rival to me can arise who urges people to worship another local deity. But if I change to a religion that has just one God or a religion that has a huge following or a lot of prestige, it'll be much harder for my rivals to overthrow me. The Russian primary chronicle tells us a lot about 
Vladimir's attempts to learn about the religions of his neighbors, also the attempts of his neighbors to teach him about their religions. And so he weighs the pros and cons of uh, Christianity as its practice in Rome, Christianity as practice in Constantinople, modern Istanbul, of Islam and of Judaism. And he decides to go with the Christianity of Byzantium in Constantinople, uh, with modern uh, Russian orthodoxy. And the stated reason is that his envoys go to Constantinople and they think that the church, the cathedral of Hagia Sophia is so beautiful. And that's what changes his mind, makes him choose uh, the Christianity of the Byzantines. The unstated reason is that the Byzantines are a very powerful kingdom. They actually, at that moment, they need military assistance, which Vladimir can offer. And so it was a very good alliance for him to enter into. But all over Afro-Eurasia, rulers are making the same kind of decision and calculation about converting to a new religion. Well, tell us about the conversion of the leader of Ghana. How how does it make its way to West Africa? Well, Islam is um, both traders and missionaries are uh, coming from, we think, probably Oman. Uh, But there's lots of people coming from the Middle East and going into Africa and going west and also going south and going through the Sahara to the uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And the account we have is that it's like the Russian primary chronicle. It's written from a strongly Muslim point of view. And it tells us about a king who meets a missionary and rain hasn't come to his kingdom in a long time. And he complains to the missionary. The missionary says, if you convert to Islam, your problems will be solved. So the king converts and rain comes. The story tells us that the king converts, the king of Malal converts because of the greater power of the Islamic God, the same God, the God of the Christians and the God of the Jews. Um, but we can also see that there are advantages to converting for the king who, who converts. Strategic, pragmatic advantages for him. So we have this phenomenon of mass migrations of people uh, all around the same time around the year 1000. Yeah, it's funny. The one thing I would say is I wouldn't say mass migrations. I would just say migrations. We know people are moving, but we don't necessarily know how many people are moving. It it may not be that many people. It may be small groups. Sometimes the documented groups that we know about are not that large. But consequential, nevertheless. But consequential, right. What about the Khazars? They're interesting. The Russian Primary Chronicle tells us that they were Jews and that they had converted actually before 1000, around 900. Their conversion is much debated. If you Google the Hazars and Judaism, you'll see there are some very serious scholars who are very skeptical that they converted ever to Judaism. But we have some coins that they minted. These are from like the 830s. And it's a coin that's a copy of a Islamic coin. And the Islamic coin has the classic expression of faith. There is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet. And the Hazar coins say there's only one God and Moses is his prophet. I mean, it's a direct copy of the Islamic coins, but they've replaced the word Muhammad with the word Moses. I I think those coins show us that at least some of the Hazar rulers converted to Judaism. Perhaps the whole population didn't. It's, It's a vexed issue. One of the reasons people doubt the Hazar conversion is that there's no archaeological evidence. And so um, that's one of the reasons people doubt this conversion. By raising the question of Muslim traders, 
and and trading, particularly across um, Africa and down to the central part of Africa, you introduced us to the question of the trade in slaves and gold. Give us a sense of the scale of the African slave trade and its various partner centers. Well, the the trade from sub-Saharan Africa to the north, and this is, again, very hard to get hard, reliable numbers, but a scholar named Ralph Austin did some very careful calculations. And he thinks that there may have been as many, nearly 12 million slaves were forced to go across the Sahara and go north. And that's in a period from about uh, 600 to 1600. That's a little bit less than the estimates we have, which are much more reliable for the transatlantic slave trade, where the total estimates are around 12 and a half million. But it gives us a sense that there is a considerable slave trade very early on. And the slave trade is, as I said, is moving north across the Sahara. And from there, the main place that the slaves are going is into the Islamic world, into the main slave markets in Baghdad, in Cairo. And there's also a big um, slave market in Constantinople, which is a Christian city, not a Muslim city. But what we know about the Islamic slave trade, uh, it seems that the number of female slaves seems to have been higher than the male slaves. So I think more than labor, it may be reproductive power that the women slaves are joining households and giving birth to children. And um, there are many different legal traditions in the Islamic world, but as a group, they tend to concur that the children born to slave women and the um, her master, that they're, they're born free. And then the master, it is hoped, will free the mother of his free children. But if he doesn't and he dies, then she is freed on his death. And that means that the Islamic world is constantly replenishing its supply of slaves. Well, tell us about Mansa Musa, who was the king of Mali in the early 1300s. Who was he and how did he ride the gold trade, as you call it, uh, to the top? We know about Mansa Musa because he goes on the Hajj in the early 1300s. And when he gets to Cairo, modern historians think he may be traveling with between 13 and 18 tons of gold. It's a huge amount of gold. Uh, It's so much gold that the price of gold declines in Cairo, that the gold he's carrying brings the price of gold down uh, in Cairo. The mining of the gold is a major source of revenue for his kingdom. Uh, We know that this is true in the Roman world too, that mining is very difficult and hazardous work and often involves slaves. And Mansa Musa, when he's talking to people in Cairo, I don't know if he gave different interpretations or they heard different things and record different things that might be more likely, but they have very contorted explanations for how a Muslim king can have so much gold mined by non-Muslims. Now, at this point in your book, you begin to move us to Central Asia. So we're moving now eastward again. And you say at the time that it had only one resource that mattered, not slaves, but uh, mounted warriors who were more skilled than any in all of Europe or Asia. Tell us about that and what contribution they made. Well, actually, they were slaves. Some of them are free, but some of them are slave. And the reason that they're so valuable is that the peoples living in Central Asia and the grasslands of Central Asia uh, grow up hunting in the grasslands and all of the skills that they acquire as children, as hunters, make them very valuable warrior slaves. And so we have some rulers who buy slaves. This is true in Egypt. One of the 
um, Egyptian dynasties, the Mamluks, is actually originates with these slave warriors. Some of the rulers recruit their own armies of these mounted warriors by offering them a share of plunder. And the reason they're so important is that they're such an effective military tool. When an army of mounted warriors is shooting bows and arrows, that's the most effective weapon in the pre-modern world. This is before the introduction of cannon, and there are no guns. Now, we know that the uh, horse is extremely important, as you just described to us, and it is a phenomenon of the central plains of uh, Asia, the cultivation of the horse. Uh, but there's also, at this time in Central Asia, what was a state-of-the-art expertise in science, mathematics, and calendar science in particular. Tell us about this and about the role that science played and why calendar science was the most prized of all the sciences. Calendar science is important because if you're, there are various celestial phenomena that if you don't know about them are absolutely terrifying, like an eclipse. And if you do know about them because you can predict eclipses accurately, then as a ruler, you can take advantage of that knowledge and claim to control these mysterious forces. I mean, calendars are important anyway, just in terms of when to plant. So many things in the pre-modern world hinged on having an accurate sense of the seasons and when seasons were starting. I think the eclipses were so terrifying to people, to subjects, and that rulers who, uh, who had good astronomical advisors could gain the trust of their subjects because of that advice. The person who knows the most about calendars in the year 1000 is a Muslim scientist named Al-Biruni. Everyone always calls him a polymath. Uh, he knows about so many different things. He's also a geographer, which is another field that's booming at this time. But there, there are astronomers all over Afro-Eurasia. In East Asia, we know that there's a Japanese ruler who hears from his court astronomers that an eclipse is coming, and he sends his minions to uh, Korea and China to try to get hold of up-to-date almanacs because he wants to know when that eclipse is going to fall. And so the um, calendar science is not limited to any part of Afro-Eurasia. The interest in the skies is shared by everybody. It's about this time we see the development of Central Asia, but it's being split into two, as you describe it. Tell us about that. We've talked about this already, that there were a lot of conversions around the year 1000. And we see that pattern continuing in Central Asia. So we have the spread of Islam and the conversion of um, several rulers, including Mahmoud of Ghazna, who's based in Afghanistan, to Islam. And so uh, the Western part of Central Asia forms an Islamic bloc. And then the Eastern part, which includes uh, China, so the Sung dynasty, the Liao dynasty in North China. It also includes Japan and Korea. Those are all Buddhist areas. And so we see this split between the Buddhist and the Islamic halves of Central Asia. And while this is going on in the central part of Asia, there is in the ocean, Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea in the Bay of Bengal and South China Sea, a lot of maritime trade going on. Tell us about that. Absolutely. The shipping route that is in greatest use at this time is the route that connects the Chinese ports of Guangzhou and Quanzhou um, with the Basra, which is the port for Baghdad. And the route goes south from China through Singapore, around Southeast Asia, around India, all the way uh, across the Indian Ocean to the Islamic world. The route extends down the East African coast. And we can find archaeological evidence of this trade. There are shipwrecks. Chinese ceramics are 
often the telltale sign of the trade because the ceramics last in so many different kinds of circumstances. So we've already talked about the development of great uh, cities in uh, Central America, Chichen Itza being the greatest example of one. But we see these great cultural structures being developed in Borobudur and Angkor Wat. Tell us about those developments and those situations. Well, Borobudur is uh, really reaches its peak around 800, and it's a major Buddhist pilgrimage center. Uh, it's interesting because very close to Borobudur uh, is another site that is actually Hindu. And Borobudur and also Angkor Wat, these are rulers who are deriving most of their wealth from rice agriculture. And uh, that's allowing them, they form temple states in, uh, and we can see these temple states also in India where the rulers are tapping the agrarian wealth of their societies and they're patronizing Buddhism or Hinduism or sometimes both. And uh, their subjects connect the human rulers with the divine power of the gods that they worship. Uh, Angkor Wat has a much longer run. It's, it's about 600 years where uh, it's a major religious center. And when you visit Angkor Wat, that makes perfect sense because there are so many different temples that you can see. And some of them are Buddhist and some of them are Hindu and some of them switch. Angkor Wat for most of its existence was a Hindu temple and it only became a Buddhist temple after 1400. Now we come to the final chapter in your book, and you bring us back to Guangzhou and China, which you describe as having the most extensive trade ties in foreign countries than any other people in the world in the year 1000. You say that the route connecting China with Africa was the longest and most heavily traveled sea route before 1492. After 1492, it was the transatlantic route from Europe to the Americas. What made China so open to trade? Well, China then, as now, was a manufacturing powerhouse. There were no factories yet. There's no electricity. There's no steam power. The Chinese have huge kilns that go up the sides of hillsides, and they're called dragon kilns because the kiln curves up the side of the hill like a dragon. They can attain very high temperatures. And so the Chinese are making ceramics that are fired to a higher temperature than any place else in the world at the time. And these goods are extremely popular everywhere. They're also exporting metal goods. There are things like metal vases or blocks, uh, some utilitarian goods. They're also exporting textiles. Well, this inclination to great trade uh, takes us back to the Americas, which we left with the decline of the Maya. So let's bring Mary back into the conversation at this point. And let me ask you both, what made the Americas so attractive to the Europeans and the Europeans so capable of dominating the Americas and after 1500, I'm thinking not only of the Maya, but the Inca and the Aztecs too. That sort of marks the end of your story. Well, when globalization is truly global and complete, of course, the thing that is most attractive to Europeans is the extraction of mineral wealth. And the notion that gold and to a lesser degree, silver cannot be devalued. But of course, this is going to be the great economic discovery of the 16th and 17th centuries, that in fact, precious metals turn out to be only as good as their investment and their development is in capital. So the discovery of, of the Americas and the fantastic wealth that is generated through the ability to harvest so much gold and silver 
and simultaneously for indigenous populations to suffer uh, depredations that perhaps go as high as 90 or 95% of indigenous populations across the Americas, Aztec, Inca, Iroquois, Upper Mississippian peoples, that people die from European contact, European diseases such alarming rates, the greatest devastation of population that we know of in the history of the world. The Spanish seaborne economy will eventually collapse as there's not enough possibility to even have a market in the new world and that all the gold in the world can't save you if you do not develop it into other goods and through other opportunities for populations to grow and thrive. 1492 is the beginning of an absolutely terrible hundred years for New World peoples and traumatic and disruptive years for Europeans, but it is the foundation of the global world today. And Valerie, what about you? The one thing I would add is that when Columbus arrives in the Americas, there's already a trading system that's intact and far-reaching and highly developed. He runs into a, a Maya trading canoe that offers him a snapshot of all of the trade that is taking place in, um, and at this point, it's in the Maya territory in Mexico, but also it's trade with the Caribbean. It's a, a sea trade. This canoe is of carrying goods. I think that's something when we think about 1492 that we tend to imagine that there was a blank slate in the Americas and that the Europeans arrived and trade and the economy develops after they arrive. And I think one of the things that I like so much about writing this book was learning about how many different peoples there are in the Americas and how evolved the trade relations were in the Americas before the arrival of the Europeans in 1492. Well, Valerie, it's a fantastic book, and it serves to remind us that globalization is not new. Globalization has been around for as long as people were making contact with other people in the world and changing the world in the process for the good sometimes and for the bad other times. So thank you very much for joining me on this podcast, and thank you, Mary, for joining Valerie on this podcast with me. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be here, Jim. This episode was produced by Zoe Goldman with audio production by Gideon Brower and mixing by Mike Dodge Weisskopf. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Arts and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcast platforms. For photos, transcripts, and more resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Or if you have a question or an idea for an upcoming episode, write to us at podcasts at getty.edu. Thanks for listening.